How many of you remember English class? Some of you are in it now. I remember for some reason having the hardest time with thesis statements. And my English teacher desperately demanded a clear thesis statement. And I had trouble again and again and again. It's that sentence, it's that statement that will drive the rest of the argument. And this morning we arrive at the thesis statement of the book of Romans. Romans 1, 16 and 17. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, it's page 883. If you don't own a Bible, feel free to take that one. The rest of the book of Romans will be an expanding and an unpacking of these two verses that we're going to tackle this morning. Romans 1, 16 and 17. Last week, that last verse, Cody preached for us, mentioned that Paul was eager to preach the gospel. And now in these verses, he's going to give us the reason for his eagerness. That's why verse 16, it begins with this little connecting word for or because. So let's read together Romans 1, verses 16 to 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The three points this morning, really it's one point with two reasons for that one point. The main point is don't be ashamed of the gospel. He says in verse 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Paul is unashamed and we should be too. But why do you think this is here? Clearly being ashamed of the gospel could be a temptation. In fact, in one of Paul's other letters, he actually prays. At the end of the letter to the Ephesians, he prays that he asks for prayer as well. He says, would the church, would you pray for me that I would be bold in opening my mouth to speak the gospel? May I be bold as I ought to be? His prayer is, would you pray that I would be unashamed? In fact, one way to know whether or not we're ashamed of the gospel is how much do we talk about it? How much do we share it? How much do we ask our brothers and sisters, would you pray for me that I would be unashamed, that I would be bold in speaking about the gospel as I ought to speak about the gospel? Well, what are some reasons? Why would we be ashamed of the gospel? Well, remember that gospel means good news, but as we're going to see in Romans, good news really only makes sense in light of bad news. One of the ways that we summarize the gospel here at Southside, we, we hit this in our membership class, and it's just with four hooks. My hope is that we could ask any member of Southside, what is the gospel? Not, our, not what are the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but what is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ? And one way we want to equip you to do that is these four hooks, God, sin, Christ, response. God, and really two main things about him, he's cr the creator and he's holy. I think everyone in our culture knows that he's loving, and we're going to mention that really under Christ, but he's holy and he's the creator. Sin, this is our problem. God created us good, Genesis 1. It didn't take long for us to mess it up, Genesis 3, and we've been doing so ever since. So we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If God is holy and we are sinful, that's the bad news. Enter the good news, Christ. God, sin, Christ. Jesus came, lived the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died. And so he died a substitutionary death on the cross in our place. So that if we trust in him, response will be saved. The response is then 
to turn from sin and turn to Christ. God, sin, Christ, response. So the good news is that Jesus Christ came to die in the place of sinners, was raised from the dead. So why would we be ashamed of this good news? The book of 1 Corinthians says that the gospel, even in the first century, was a stumbling block to the Jewish people, and it was foolishness to the non-Jewish people. In other words, people don't like the message, Jews or non-Jews. Part of it is people don't like to be told that they're sinners. And so maybe we're ashamed because we don't want to feel uncomfortable, or maybe we don't want to be perceived as weird. There's many Christians that are ashamed of the gospel because it is an offensive message. It's offensive because it tells us that we're so sinful we cannot earn our own salvation. We are not good enough. No one is. In fact, flip over a page to Romans chapter 3, verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That's an offensive message to 21st century America. Though honestly, it's always been an offensive message. People don't like to be told that they're so wicked that only the death of the Son of God could save us. But that's part of the gospel message. So maybe we want to stay comfortable. Maybe we don't want to step on toes. Maybe we don't want to offend people because it is such an unbelievable message. It is a supernatural message, this gospel. We believe that God became a man, the incarnation. But not only that, God became a man and died on a cross, a Roman instrument of execution, which is why it was a stumbling block for Jews. It's why it's foolishness. To Gentiles, the early Christians were mocked for their belief. In fact, we've got a, an example of this. This is a, uh, the first example of the depiction of Christ crucified. I think we've got a picture. So this is somewhere between about 80, 80, and 200. And again, this is the first depiction we have. And you'll notice we have this guy here, and you can't really read it. For one, it's in Greek. But what it says is, Alexamenos worships his God. And so you see this convert, probably a Roman convert, Alexamenos here, he's got his hand up and there's this cross, a man on a cross, but you notice the head, it's a donkey. So right from the get-go, people are just mocking. What kind of person would worship someone or something that ends up on a cross? So we might get mocked because it is a supernatural message. Maybe we're ashamed of the fact that it is supernatural. Some of us might even suffer. I don't think that will be an unrealistic case in our lifetime. But as 2 Timothy 1 puts it, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. A little bit later in 2 Timothy one, he says, this is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he's able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Maybe we're tempted to be ashamed because the gospel is an exclusive message. Exclusivity. In other words, the Bible teaches Jesus is the only way to be saved. To use the words of Jesus himself, no one comes to the father except through me. That is very offensive today. 
in our age of pluralism and relativism. As Peter says, there is salvation found in no other name given among men by which we must be saved than the Lord Jesus. And so we start talking about judgment and hell, which is a part of this message. It's not much more offensive today than the reality of hell. And so maybe we're ashamed of that message and don't talk about it as we should. Maybe we're ashamed of the fact that the gospel has life-altering implications. The fact that Jesus calls us to die to self. Yeah, whatever you've got going and your agenda, nail it to the cross. To come to Christ is to come to the end of yourself. And we, starting in Genesis 3, we love our autonomy. We love the fact that we are self-rulers, so we think. Maybe it's the Bible's teaching about sexuality, which is increasingly considered hateful that we might be ashamed. Maybe it's the fact that God calls us to give generously instead of just spend on ourselves. Maybe it's the fact that God calls us again and again to put the life of the church over and above our social life. I don't know, there's many reasons we might be tempted to be ashamed of the gospel and its implications. But the call is to be like Paul here and do not be ashamed. It's not ashamed of the gospel. Listen to the words of the Lord Jesus in Mark chapter eight. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the son of man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. So church, may we not be ashamed of the gospel, not ashamed to tell it, not ashamed to uphold it. Paul says he's not ashamed, which is a roundabout way of saying that he's proud of it, right? He has complete confidence in the gospel. In these verses, the Spirit through the Apostle gives us two reasons why we ought to have complete confidence in the gospel, two reasons why we ought not be ashamed. And the first is we don't be ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation. Look at it there in verse 16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek the power of God for salvation. Of course, salvation means deliverance from judgment. Christians often talk about salvation. Are you saved? I was saved when? But we don't often stop and ask, what is it that we're saved from? And there's actually a lot of right answers to that. But in back of all of them, fundamentally, we're saved from God's wrath, which is why next week we'll look at verse 18. He starts right off the bat, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. What is salvation fundamentally? It's salvation from God's wrath. Flip over to chapter 5. Verse 8. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. God saves us from judgment. And this passage here says that God saves, how? Through the gospel. The gospel message is the power of God to salvation. This is so vital. It's so vital for us to get for, us to get for numerous reasons. Scripture says that we are dead in sin. How did dead people come alive? 
The Holy Spirit makes dead people come alive through the gospel. One helpful way that Christians have talked about this is through the external call and the internal call. Sometimes called the gospel call and the effective call. So the external call goes out. Whether that's me preaching, whether that's a missionary teaching, whether that's a parent discipling, a Sunday school teacher sharing the gospel, you talking about Jesus with a coworker or a neighbor, that's the external call and the spirit issues the internal call through that external call. So external call goes out, we share the gospel and God saves through that message. Conversion is a supernatural work of God. If you are here today and you're a Christian, that's a miracle. You were once dead and through the gospel, the spirit has made you alive. And it's that internal call that really makes the gospel beautiful rather than a stumbling block or beautiful rather than foolishness. Let me read from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. says, the word of the cross, that's the gospel. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Skipping down to 123, but we preach Christ crucified. There's the message. That's probably the shortest way you could summarize the gospel. Two words, Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, there it is. Both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The gospel was foolishness to us. And then the Spirit summoned us through that gospel message. The Spirit turns the lights on, breathes life into the corpse. Or as with Lydia in Acts 16, opens her heart to heed what is said. We may have heard it a thousand times. That was me. I occasionally popped in to Eula First Baptist Church. I heard the gospel. It was boring to me. Jesus was kind of like a side-on, a get-out-of-free-hell card. But when the Spirit so determined, all of a sudden, he opened my heart. And that gospel that I had heard became the most important and precious truth in the world. That's your story, too. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 4. We know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And so the gospel message goes out and God calls people to faith. And he does it through the gospel message. Faith comes from hearing, we're going to see in Romans 10, hearing through the gospel, the word of Christ. And so God saves through the word of Christ. I mean, this is so significant. God, the one who has all authority, the one who created all things, has invested his power in these words, in this message. As this gospel is shared, it changes things. The gospel brings forth the death-defeating, curse-revoking, life-giving, sin-forgiving, love-producing, community-forming, heart-melting, life-reorienting, mind-changing power of God. And so, church, be unashamed of this gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. There was this church leader in the 5th century named Theodoret, and he compared the gospel with a pepper. Any of you accidentally bit into a really, really hot pepper? Now, I'm a gringo. I'm weak. But when I was little, some, some friends next door t- talked me into 
biting into a chili patine. So oh, it's just like a red hot. You'll be fine. And so I was younger than these guys. I wanted to be cool. So all right, I'll, I'll eat it, put it in. And you know how it goes. You chew on it and you're good for like 20 seconds. I'm thinking I'm good, man. And then all of a sudden, boom, it hits. <laughs> I ran out the door bawling like a baby, got milk and bread. I thought my tongue was going to fall off. Theodore said the gospel is like a pepper. It's cold on the outside. But once you crush it between your teeth, the sensation is burning fire. The gospel can just be some story, something your grandma talked about, some theory, but when the spirit calls, it becomes the power of God. It's the word dunamis, from which we later would get our word dynamite. And notice he says, this gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. This external call, this invitation is for everybody. This universal offer of the gospel is all over Romans. I want you to see it. Flip over to chapter 3, verse 22. It says, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there's no distinction. Flip over to chapter 4, verse 11. He received this, this is Abraham, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised. Flip over to chapter 10, verse 4. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Look at verse 11 of chapter 10. Scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Salvation for anyone who believes. And then he says, to the Jew first and then the Greek. And this has always been God's plan. His plan was always to reach the world through the Jewish people, right? Right from the very beginning. I talk about Genesis 12 a lot here on purpose. It's the foundational chapter of the forming of the people of God. And why were they formed? Why were they blessed? In order to be a blessing to the world. Abraham would become a family and through that family, all the nations of the world would be blessed. They were called to be a kingdom of priests. What do priests do? They mediate, right? The whole nation of Israel was to be a mediator, they were to be a light to the nations, but as we know the story of the Old Testament, they just become like the nations. So God promises a new covenant, and now the church is formed, and as First Peter says, we are the kingdom of priests. We are the light of the world, the holy nation, which is why at the end of the book of Romans, he says Christ became a servant to the Jewish people to show God's truthfulness to his promises to Abraham in order that the Gentiles might glorify God. This has always been the plan, to the Jew first, also to the Greek we see this pattern in the book of Acts. It was Paul's practice. He would start in the synagogue. Acts 13, 46 says this, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, Jews, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. Chapter 18, he goes to the Jew first and then they reject him and he says, your blood be on your own hands. From now I'm going to the Gentiles. He says the same thing at the very last verses of the book of Acts. To the Jew first and to the Greek. Here's the point. This gospel's for anyone. Jews, non-Jews. Regardless of background. Aggies, Longhorns. Democrats, Republicans. Texans, Oklahomans. 
Maybe. <laughs> I, I want to believe that. There's this church in Nashville called Emmanuel. They've got this, they've got this slogan and it goes like this. I'm a complete idiot. Children, we don't use that word in our home, by the way. This is their slogan, not ours. That's the first point, though. Because of Jesus, my future is incredibly bright. Third, anyone can get on on this. I'm a complete idiot. My future is incredibly bright, and anyone can get in on this. And so don't be ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God. Let's not be ashamed. Rather, let's have confidence in the gospel. God saves through the gospel message. So don't be ashamed. This should embolden us to guard it, but also to share it, right? To me, this is so freeing. What is our role? It's to be faithful to the message he's entrusted us with. In that sense, our role is an ambassador. You know, ambassadors don't make up the message. They don't edit the message. They guard it and they share it. That's our call. So we plant and we water, but at the end of the day, God gives the growth. We scatter the seed. We can't control the soil. God's in that business. We just do our job to get this gospel out, knowing that it's this gospel that saves. I introduced an initiative a few weeks ago that the Southern Baptist Convention is doing called Who's Your One? And basically for the whole year, 2019, want every Southern Baptist to ask the question, who's your one? Who's one unchurched, unbelieving person that you can pray for and invest in and seek to share the gospel with? Just one. We all have many. Let's just focus on one. And as we get the opportunity to share this gospel message, God saves through this message. It's not about you and how much you have it together and how articulate or witty you are. It's about can you be faithful to the message that God has saved through. Parents, Sunday school teachers, continue to pound home the gospel. We were at a conference a few weeks ago and one of the children's ministry people used this image that was really helpful to me. And he's the image of what we do as parents and as Sunday school teachers or anyone with influence over young ones is we pack kindling, you know, like you're starting a fire. It's pretty hard to start a fire without kindling. So we pack kindling all around that heart. We can't light the match. We can't start the fire. That's God's business. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. But what we can do is we can pack kindling all around that little heart. So when the spirit decides to strike, they ablaze with the glory of God. Trusting in the message. God saves through the message. It's the power of God for salvation. Don't be ashamed of it. But that's not all. He gives us a second reason. Don't be ashamed of the gospel because it's the, in the gospel that we receive the righteousness of God. Look at verse 17. Romans 1.17. For or because in it, that is the gospel, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Don't be ashamed because in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Well, what's the righteousness of God? It's God's saving activity by which he declares us in the right. We're going to hit this again and again in Romans 1 through 11. It's God's saving activity by which he declares us 
in the right. Another way, way of saying that is God's justifying activity. If you don't have a good, crisp, clear answer, if I were to ask you, what does the Bible mean by justification? Let me invite you next week, next Sunday night. We're going to have a Sunday night equip service, Sunday at 5, not tonight, but next Sunday, and spend about an hour, 30 minutes or so of teaching on the doctrine of justification. In some ways, it's the most important doctrine in the Bible. Let me encourage you to come so we learn a little bit more. We're going to hit it again and again from passages in Romans 1 to 8 especially. It's a positional word. It's a word about our standing before God. It results in sinful people having a right standing with God to have no debts, no liabilities, no shortcomings, but righteousness credited to our accounts. Righteousness, a right standing is offered to us by the Son. So in this sense, the gospel, the good news, it provides more than mere forgiveness of sins. We need more than just a blank slate. We actually need a credit. How much credit? What does God require? Is it just 51%? As long as our good outweighs the bad, that's what a lot of people think and believe. No. God requires perfection. God requires a positive standing that we cannot attain. We all fall short. We are all needy sinners. But in the gospel, we have sins forgiven and the gift of a right standing. Again, Jesus lived the life we should have lived and died the death we deserved to die. This is what theologians call imputation. It's a big theological word. It's actually in the Bible. We'll see it in Romans 4. Well, we've got a graphic here I want to show you for you visual learners. What is imputation? It's the fact that God counts our sin, top left, to Christ's account. That word count is the word impute or reckon from Romans 4. When we put our faith in Jesus, our sin is counted to Christ's accounts. And Christ's perfect righteousness is credited to our account. Not only do we need our sins forgiven, we need a positive standing. Well, the point of Christianity, the point of the gospel, the point of the cross is that when we trust in Jesus, our sins are no longer ours. They're counted to him. He bore them for us on our behalf. And his positive righteousness is counted as ours. God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We see this in Romans chapter four as well. Skip over a couple of pages. Look at Romans four, verse one. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For If Abraham was justified, declared in the right by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Quotes Genesis, Abraham believed God and it was counted, there's the word, to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, His faith is imputed, counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And then he quotes the Psalms. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. 
Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. He doesn't count our sin against us because if we've trusted Christ, he counted our sin to Christ. Flip over to Romans chapter 10. Verse 1, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes the lawmaker became the law keeper and then died for lawbreakers. This is justification. This is imputation. Philippians chapter three, verse four. Paul's boasting, if anyone else thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Let me tell you why. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, I persecuted the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. He couldn't point a finger at Paul. What does he say though? Verse seven, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness from God. It's a gift. That word is so important from him that depends on faith. This right standing is a gift we receive through faith in Jesus Christ that we all need. So I already told you, but how do we receive this gift of righteousness? Well, we just read it in those verses. The the gift of righteousness that depends on faith. But look at our passage again, just to see it there. Back to Romans 1, 17. Don't be ashamed for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. How? From faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. From faith for faith, or as the paraphrase, the New Living Translation puts it, from start to finish by faith. By faith from first to last. Faith and nothing but faith. By faith through and through. And faith, as Luther Luther helps us define it, is a living, daring confidence in God's grace. We are right with God. We receive righteousness not by anything we do, but by believing in Jesus. Not by works, but by faith. Faith is the cord that plugs into the outlets. It connects us to the power. It's not faith that saves. It's Christ that saves through faith. Maybe you're here and you haven't ever put your faith in Jesus Christ. If you're here and you're not a Christian, your greatest need is righteousness. The bad news is you can never attain it yourself. You can never be good enough. No one can. No, not one. The good news is Jesus Christ offers you his righteousness in the gospel today if you will receive him through faith. If you have any questions about that, we would love to talk more. 
If you have trusted Christ, the first way to let the world know is to go public. And how you go public in the Bible is through believer's baptism. We'd love to talk more. And then notice what Paul does. He does what he's going to do all the way through Romans. He grounds what he's saying in the Old Testament. Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel's hopes. He says, as it is written, that's a little phrase you're going to find all over Romans and all over the New Testament. As it is written, that's because Jesus and the apostles viewed the Old Testament as the authoritative word of God. As it is written, the righteous will live by faith, quoting Habakkuk. Just like the people of God in the day of Habakkuk, even now, we trust, we wait in faith for God's salvation. Friends, this is good news. This is the greatest news. The imputation of our sin to Christ and the imputation of his righteousness to us. This is the hope of the world. As we're reading and talking about these truths, to use the language of John Wesley, if your heart is not warmed, something may be wrong. And it often is with me, I often pray, Lord, if I truly believed this stuff, I ought to be rejoicing all the time. It doesn't mean we have to outwardly be doing jumping jacks. It may. But if your heart is not warmed over hearing these truths, something's not right. This is the greatest news in the world. Imputation should shatter fear. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are united to Christ. Our lives are hidden with him. Romans chapter 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who can bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies The gift of righteousness should eliminate insecurity. Our lives are secure. We are secure in Christ. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless, to stand before the throne. If you've trusted Jesus Christ, you will be faultless standing before the judgment seat, not because of anything in you, but because Christ has been your substitute through faith. Imputation should free us from guilt. No guilt in life, no fear in death. Imputation should give us assurance. Nothing in our hands we bring simply to the cross we cling. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. We're children of God. Our status and our standing does not depend upon us, but on the substitutionary death and on the perfect life of Jesus Christ. When Satan tempts us to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward we look and see him there who made an end to all our sin. Because the sinless Savior died, our sinful souls are counted free for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Imputation should delight us. This is the good news of the gospel. It should produce joy in our Savior. It should make us sing, no condemnation, now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine, alive in him my living head and clothed in righteousness Divine, Y'all best be glad I can't sing. I'd be singing through half my sermons. (laughs) Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Amazing love, how can it be that Christ should die for me? Dear friends, the question we are left with is how could we be ashamed of this gospel? 
It's the power of God for salvation. Through this gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith first to last. Oh, we should be unashamed. We should be like Paul is in verses 14 and 15. Look at those, 114, 15. I'm under obligation, he says, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. I'm eager to preach the gospel. We should feel under obligation. We should feel eager. We should be unashamed of the gospel because it's through that that God saves and it's through that that we receive our greatest need, forgiveness and righteousness. We ought to be unashamed. And isn't the Apostle Paul the best example of the unashamed life? I remember hearing Matt Chandler talk about how frustrating Paul has to be to anyone who wanted to silence him because what do you do? You would threaten him with death. Paul, if you don't, if you don't stop preaching the gospel, we're going to put you to death. And what is Paul's response? To die is gain. How can the Lord use a person who sees that the worst thing that can happen to them, death, is actually gain? Because they get to go be with the Lord. Death is gain. Okay, well, we're going to let him live then. Well, I'm going to orient my life around Jesus Christ. To live is Christ. Well, we'll lock you up. What happens when you lock the Apostle Paul up? They just sing hymns and guards get saved. So, well, we're going to persecute you. Paul's not too worried about this present life. He doesn't consider his own life dear to him. He's worried about the future. He knows. He's got the long view. And so he says the present sufferings aren't even worth comparing to the future glory. St. Patrick in the 5th century is an example of what it means to be unashamed. We celebrate St. Patrick's Day. I don't know where we got the green beer and leprechauns, but St. Patrick (laughs) was a saint. St. Patrick was captured as a young man and enslaved for several years where he was converted. He escaped. He wasn't actually from Ireland. He was enslaved in Ireland. He escapes. After being converted, he studies his Bible and is burdened by the Lord to go back to Ireland and preach the gospel. His family and friends says, you're foolish. He says, I'm unashamed. John Chrysostom in the fourth century was preaching the gospel and the hierarchy of the government got irritated with him particularly the one that was ruling at the time. She was an empress. She threatened to banish him. Here was his reply. You cannot banish me for this world is my father's house. Then they threatened him with death. And he said, no, you can't kill me. My life is hid with Christ and God. The, the empress threatened to take away all of his stuff. Chrysostom said, no, you cannot for my treasure is in heaven and my heart is there. Then the empress said she would drive him away from all his relationships And he says, no, you cannot, for I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. I defy you, for there is nothing you can do to harm me. Unashamed. Or even earlier, Polycarp, pastor at Smyrna, put on trial, and he's asked to recant Jesus and swear allegiance to Caesar instead. And he says, 80 and 6 years have I served him. He never did me any wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? unashamed for I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek because in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written the righteous shall live by faith